Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm Julie Fetty, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Kathleen Wellman about her new book, Queens and Mistresses of Renaissance France, published in 2013 by Yale University Press. Kathleen Wellman is Dedman Family, Distinguished Professor of History, as well as the Department Chair at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. She is the author of two previous books, and her research interests center on early modern Europe, intellectual history, and the history of science and medicine. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about the book, Julie. It's a great privilege to talk about it with you, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, Your audience might like to know how I came to be on a gender studies discussion, given that my earlier work has been in science and medicine. And um, so I'll say something about how I came to this topic and how I came to my interest in French history in particular. I think I can trace my interest in French history back to my family's move to New Orleans with the space program. Uh, When I started school in seventh grade in New Orleans, I started at a school where everyone else had been learning French since kindergarten. And living in New Orleans, you couldn't help but be struck by the continuous presence of all things French. And for me, history has always been profoundly interdisciplinary, and I've always been interested in philosophy, literature, and art, and history for me was a way to integrate all of those interests. And when I went to the University of Chicago, I was struck in particular by the fact that so much of what I knew about early modern European history did not include the story of the history of science. And I thought that was an important way to make sense of the early modern period. So much of my earlier research and my earlier publications have been in the history of science and medicine. But about 12 years ago, I had the opportunity to begin to teach every summer in the SMU in Paris program. And that's how I came to this particular uh, subject, because um, my students could not get their heads around Dion de Poitiers, Catherine de Medici, and Henry II. And as I began to look into the role of the royal mistress, I couldn't help but be struck by the presence of mistresses and queens in French museums and in the Chateau of Loire Valley and things like that. So that's how I came to this particular topic. A wonderful example of how teaching can influence research. Right. I mean, I think that's a convention in our lives, and it's true that La Maitre sometimes shows up in my classes, but this was profoundly important to my teaching because I thought this would be an important way into women's history and into the history of France, and I also discovered it was a really good way to introduce students to historiography. Uh, I have So when I started working on this project, I developed a first-year seminar to see whether students could uh, get a handle on French history and women's history by focusing on these elite women. I had them read my chapters to see whether they were accessible to them and to figure out what I really needed to provide as background because, as I'm sure your listeners are very aware, the 16th century in France is particularly complicated because of family and dynastic relations and religious issues and all kinds of complications. But also there are so many biographies of Catherine de' Medici that students could use her as a case study to get a handle on how historians work and how historiography develops. And so this particular book has been profoundly influential in my teaching. And I'm thinking of trying to come up with other topics that would allow students to begin to explore research topics with me as well. 
And you argue that these women deserve our attention uh, because they use their roles in important ways, in politics and diplomacy, in forming dynasties, in arts and letters. Um, and yet they've often been discounted by historians. I, I, I mean, I considered myself a well-trained early modernist, and I had scarcely heard of any of these women. And when I had heard of them, it was in the context of novels like uh, La Reine Margot of Dumas and um, romanticized stories about Diane de Poitiers, for instance, and conventional histories of the French Renaissance virtually exclude them entirely. There might be a sentence or two. Uh, it's really rare to find them in accounts of the French Renaissance at all. And you're, mm -hmm. you're a 21st century scholar, um, and yet there still may be today uh, feminist discomfort with the study of royal mistresses and queens, right? Because their influence and power came about only because of their sexual association and personal relationships with kings and not because of their own merit. So how do you wrestle with that? Well, and that's one issue that I found initially rather discomforting, in fact. And it seemed to me that uh, there were very good reasons that women's history hadn't uh, focused on these women to the degree that women were featured at all or had prominent roles in French art or literature or culture, they were elite women. So as women's history developed, uh, historians were interested in finding groups of people uh, who'd been omitted in the historical record or people whose background perhaps conformed more to that of historians. And, um, and it really took the intense interest of my students in elite women, which might have a great deal more to do with uh, celebrity culture in the 20th and 21st centuries than it does with uh, did with my own initial interests, but I began to think about the difficulty. I mean, these women faced challenges uh, as serious as those of other groups not well reflected in historical literature. They were the elite members of society, but they still had to cope with the fact that their marriages were arranged, that their life, their lives were significantly shortened often by extensive childbearing. They had philandering husbands. They had rivals in the court. They could have a mistress to contend with or other royal family members to deal with. They could be marginalized by almost anything despite their privileged position within the hierarchy. So the women who were able to take advantage of the opportunities they had, I found really interesting. And I found their influence under-acknowledged. Under and I thought perhaps their story was significant enough that they could be used as a narrative focus. And that's one of the things that structured the book I wrote. Could you tell the story from the very first Renaissance publicly acknowledged mistress, Agnès Sorel in 1444, to the end of the Valois monarchy, telling the narration through the vehicle of the lives of these women. So that was one of my principal goals in this particular book. And you succeeded valiantly. Um, and what struck me too, before we get to Agnès Sorel, um, uh, was the the irony of being a queen versus being a mistress. It, it seems almost dreadful to have been a queen, right? With your sole purpose of producing an, an heir, uh, usually you're married off in your own infancy, um, compared to being a mistress, it, it, which, which almost seems uh, relatively more interesting. Um, uh, you're, you're less threatened by the uh, pregnancies, which, as you argue, directly affected life expectancy and um, often benefited from this uh, official recognition. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I found interesting, too. I think we have a romance with royalty, and I would not see the lives of any of these queens as being particularly attractive, especially, as you say, they're married into a dynasty. They have no necessary role other than childbearing. 
They might have a position within uh, a monarchy. They might have political influence, but it depended on entirely on whether the man they were involved with allowed them to have it. Now, that's true for a mistress as well. Uh, but the king chooses the mistress, which means that he has perhaps, a, well, he has a greater personal interest in her. She might also seem to have a better life in that her, her, the, her period of influence is much shorter than that of a queen, right? A queen marries in early, doesn't have much influence, is shaped by the family she marries into, whereas the mistresses being chosen by a king might give her more opportunities and more opportunities to do things that we might see as interesting and that she can cultivate male supporters. She can foment dissent within a court. She arrives as a mistress, as a fully formed adult female, as opposed to the queen, who's often a very young adolescent dealing with a very strange setting. Before we get into our uh, first mistress, Agnes Sorel, can you give our listeners a background of the Renaissance in France, how it differed from the Renaissance in Italy? What is the, that context of the mid-15th century to the end of the 16th century? Okay, one of the things that I was particularly interested in was the difference between the Renaissance in Italy and the Renaissance in France. I've had the good fortune to spend a lot of time in the major Renaissance cities of Italy uh, and to do a lot, some work on Renaissance humanist culture and to teach the Italian Renaissance. And I think a lot of our understanding of the role of women in the Renaissance was set by uh Joan Kelly's famous article, Did Women Have a Renaissance, in which she concluded that humanist culture and the city-state culture of Renaissance Italy privileged men and really excluded women and gave them many fewer opportunities than they had actually had in the Middle Ages. But the culture of the Renaissance in France is markedly different. Uh, the Italian Renaissance takes place in the 14th century. It is male-dominated. It is based in city-states. It has a political arena and a public arena, and it explicitly excludes women from that arena. I would see the principal difference between the Renaissance in Italy and that in France as that the Renaissance in France is set largely in the court, which had always allowed a position for women. So it didn't define a new political venue, which privileged many more men. It instead reinterpreted the culture of the Renaissance in its latest formulation, which developed in Italy once the princes had, had reasserted power. So what as the Renaissance in Italy evolves towards a princely culture, that's the form in which the Renaissance is exported into France slowly over time. And it's exported with the French invasions of Italy. French kings go down to Italy, are very much attracted by all of the luxury goods, the, art, the new arts of the Renaissance, the new gardens, the new architecture, and they want to bring this back to their courts. And the women of their courts are also interested in patronizing Renaissance arts, in collecting Renaissance texts. So the Renaissance in France is derivative of the Italian Renaissance, but it takes place in a distinctively court culture, which does allow greater opportunity for women. And yet the Hundred Years' War gets in the way quite a bit. Ah, yes. Well, the Hundred Years' War delays the onset of the Renaissance in Italy, I would say, and uh, really, re really keeps Italy as separate from both England and France, which means the Renaissance moves into Northern Europe at a much later point because the French are engaged in fighting the English, and this leads to tremendous economic uh, complications, and there isn't a lot of revenue for the cultivation of the arts until the end of the Hundred Years' War in 1453, which allows France to begin to 
uh, develop its economic base, to be, to have peace and greater stability, and to begin to cultivate the arts and be interested in this new Southern movement that they become particularly interested in as they attempt to conquer Italy. And, and both war and peace, it seems, provided opportunities for the women, the subjects of your book, to act as agents. Is that correct? Yes, I think, uh, well, war is particularly uh, useful to queens in that with any luck, they'll be left behind as regents and they can act as political powers. Um, for mistresses, peace is particularly valuable because peace allows for the diversion of state revenue into the arts and mistresses can then cultivate the arts in a way that's not possible when a kingdom's at war. And a kingdom at peace is more inclined to focus on leisure activities and court activities. And so both mistresses and queens have greater opportunities greater cultural opportunities, I would suggest, in peace, and then queens have greater political opportunities in war. And my final introductory question, Kathleen, on your book, Queens and Mistresses in Renaissance France, will be to ask you to describe France and where your book begins in the mid-1400s. It's not France as we know it today, of course. Tell us what France is like okay. That. Okay. My book begins in 1444, which is a period in which France is still engaged in the Hundred Years' War. Charles VII is trying to, uh, has just succeeded in regaining his throne, uh, reasserting his power. He'd been challenged by his uncles. He'd been challenged by the English. Uh, he'd been repudiated by his mother, uh, Isabel of Bavaria. France itself doesn't resemble what we would now recognize as France. The royal domain is quite small. The French language is not established. The French law codes are not established. Much of France is still held by other families and dynasties. So, uh, and Charles VII and his successors will still be in the process of trying to regain control and influence in northern France, which had allied itself with England during the Hundred Years' War. So it's a contested kingdom that's been at war for a hundred years without a coherent legal system or language or a strong central cultural identity. The Burgundian counts had been and dukes had been stronger and wealthier and uh, better able to cultivate the arts and forge a cultural identity than the early Valois kings had been. So tell us about Agnes Sorel, the mistress of Charles VII, um, the first official royal mistress, as you name her. What what did it mean to be an official royal mistress? Okay, it's it's rather unspecified under Charles VII. Uh, he presents her as, to his court as his mistress, and he insists that she be recognized as such, and that his court pay deference to her. Um, I think this position initially was perhaps not terribly controversial, or at least the chroniclers who surrounded him were intent on presenting a positive story, and they all cited her phenomenal beauty. And in a way, then, she comes to set the standard for what a royal mistress should be. She should be exquisite, and somehow uh, her looks justify the fact that the king has strayed from his wife. Uh, she becomes a figure of romance as opposed to uh, the poor, dutiful queen in the case of Charles VII. That queen is Marie of Anjou, who was always described as being really unattractive. Uh, one chronicler said she had a face that would even scare the English. And it's worth always thinking about when you're looking at these medieval chroniclers describing these women, thinking about what they gain by describing them one way or the other. Now, indeed, Marie of Anjou might not have been particularly attractive, but it might have been important to the chronicler to say that she wasn't and to compare her disadvantageously to Agnès, because then it's appropriate that the king has 
rejected the mother of his 14 children in a favor of this woman who's acknowledged as being the most beautiful in all of France. Um, so she's chosen by Charles when he's 42. He's not considered a particularly dynamic or successful king. Um, his mother was very powerful. His mother-in-law was very powerful. And of course, he's the king who's rescued by Joan of Arc. So Agnes gives him a kind of royal cachet he might not have had otherwise. And this becomes one of the ways in which mistresses are often subsequently construed as someone who ennobles a king by her beauty and is able, because of his devotion to her, to inspire him to greater feats of valor. And so she becomes someone around whom the mythology of the royal mistress is cultivated almost from the very beginning. Fascinating about Charles VII being influenced both by Agnes Sorel and Joan of Arc. What uh, relationship did the two of them maybe have? Okay, uh, Joan of Arc is uh, removed from the scene before Agnes ever arrives. Okay. Uh, they show up as counterpoints in um, some of the rather scurrilous writings on Joan of Arc by Voltaire in the 18th century. Uh, his text, La Pucelle, uh, both sexualizes Joan and Agnes and has them as sort of two sexually depraved women in pursuit of Charles VII, uh, sort of ribald uh, 18th century amusements uh, where Voltaire in particular could sexualize monarchs and uh, tell some really entertaining stories about them to the amusements of his readers. But uh, they don't have a historical relationship. They've had a subsequent historiographical relationship in a way in that Joan gets to be religion and sanctity and God's favor for the French and Agnes gets to be culture and romance. And they both served in a way to elevate the status of Charles VII, even if they don't necessarily suggest that he's the most powerful actor on the scene. And around this time period, was not the Salic law passed that, that finally resolved the, the Hundred Years' War, um, the, the determination that no royal daughter could inherit the crown and no male heir could claim the crown via descent from a royal daughter? I wonder how that colors the time period of Agnes Sorel and Charles VII. Okay, well, the Salic law was invoked or sort of created after the fact to justify the particular pattern of succession that led to the Valois monarchy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the success of Charles VII at the end of the Hundred Years' War affirms the existence and the legitimacy of Salic law, which means that no royal woman, will, as you said, will inherit the throne and no man can succeed through the female line. There has to be direct male descent. Um, that certainly colors the political possibilities for women, and it means that they can never, uh, they can never rule. Um, so you'll never have an Elizabeth I, uh, you'll have a Catherine de' Medici instead, or you'll have a woman who is not powerful while her husband's alive, but powerful in the minority of her sons. And that will turn out to be the role that royal women most significantly play. And it means that uh, because women can't reign, it opens up the possibility of political power for women who are not ever going to reign, but they can be mothers who act as regents, sisters who act as advisors, uh, mothers who rule through their sons the way Catherine de' Medici did, and to a less extensive degree, Louise of Savoy. Uh, and they're able to manipulate a rhetoric of motherhood that because they aren't directly ruling, they can establish themselves as being women working in the best interest of the kingdom. 
So I think uh, what women do in this context is they take advantage of the specific opportunities they have, and they develop a kind of political re uh, rhetoric that both recognizes their limitations, but also elevates them because of the limitations they have. They can't be pursuing power for their own sake. They have to be pursuing it in the interest of a male relative. Your second chapter uh, focuses on Anne of Brittany. She was not only a queen, but twice a queen. Can you explain how this happened? Yes, and I have to say that this is one of the own, my own sort of, uh, what? One of the things I did not know as a French historian was that Anne of Brittany had been twice queen of France. Uh, and it gives you a good idea of just how powerless the woman was in her own marriage arrangements. Uh, Charles VIII conquered Brittany, and he insisted that the heiress to the duchy, because Brittany allowed female succession, marry him so that Brittany could be incorporated into France. Their marriage agreement specified that should he predecease her and they not have a living male child, that she would either marry his successor or remain a widow. In other words, no matter what happened to him, Brittany would remain part of France, or Anne of Brittany would not marry and would not have a successor to Brittany. So this, I, I, I mean, it's interesting to, for me to wonder what would have happened had she not, in fact, been able to marry Charles VIII's successor. Charles VIII's successor was his cousin, Louis of Orleans, who became Louis XII. Now, interestingly, for Louis to marry Anne, he had to have his marriage to Charles VIII's sister, Jeanne Annault. And that produced a tremendous, um, long and involved annulment proceeding because Louis claimed that he had not ever consummated his marriage with Jeanne, and Jeanne insisted that the marriage had been consummated. Ultimately, the Vatican decided, not entirely surprisingly, in Louis's favor, and Anne was, was able to marry Louis XII subsequently. Um, had Louis XII not survived to succeed, uh, Charles VIII's next, next successor would have been the three-year-old Francois Angoulême, who will subsequently become Francis I, and I guess Anne of Brittany would have had to remain a widow or violate the specifications of the treaty. So this was not good for Anne to be married secondarily to Louis XII? Well, it turned out to be in her interest in that when she married uh, Charles, she was very young. It was part of a peace treaty. Brittany had been defeated. She was essentially a supplicant in the relationship. Charles was going to define the terms, and she was going to lose a great deal of the power she would have had as Duchess of Brittany. When Louis Twelfth needs to marry her, um, he had had no children by Jean. Jean was uh, deformed, and it, people didn't think she could ever bear a child. So Louis was interested in marrying Anne, both for Brittany and for legitimate heirs. She was someone. She was a woman who had been at the French court. She understood a great deal more about politics, and she was able to negotiate a marriage agreement with Louis that was much more favorable both to her interests in Brittany and to her own political interests in France. So it turned out to be in her benefit to have this marriage with Louis XII. And of the women whose stories I tell, Louis XII and Anne are the only royal couple who seem to have had anything that looks like a modern marriage. They seem to have cared for each other, been conciliatory, written to each other, um, had a sense of themselves as a couple and as a unit in the way we would expect from a married couple. And they're unique in that in this particular period, at least. 
And yet Anne had multiple pregnancies, miscarriages, stillbirths. Is that is that not correct? Is she the, the poster child almost for what can go wrong (laughs) physically on a woman's body. Yes. I mean, she had so many pregnancies and so many miscarriages recorded that we can't even be sure how many there were. Um, She had at least with her two husbands, probably at least 14 pregnancies, many stillborn children. She had, um, her first child with Charles VIII lived to be three. They tried to keep him protected as much as possible, but he still uh, contracted a disease and died at the age of three. All of her other male children died very young uh, or were stillborn. Uh, and ultimately, she and Louis will have two daughters who survive uh, Anne. But between 14 and 34, she has probably 14 pregnancies. And what was her impact on Renaissance arts and politics? Uh, okay, she, she, well, one of the things about a marriage where people get along generally is people notice when they don't. Uh, and so... Chroniclers remarked when Anne and Louis disagreed. There were times when Louis wanted to pursue warfare in Italy that Anne opposed it. And this was an issue of some contestation in the relationship. Also, Anne was very interested in marrying her daughter, Claude, to the most powerful prince in Europe. And Louis wanted Claude to be married to his successor. Louis wanted to preserve the strength of the French monarchy, even if another branch of the royal family, another Valois, the Valois d'Angoulême, inherited. And Anne wanted to protect the interests of Brittany by allying her daughter with Charles of Habsburg, who will later become the Emperor Charles V. So this was a real division between their goals uh, Anne's interest in Brittany sometimes uh, trumped Louis's plans for his French successor. Um, otherwise, uh, Anne uh, was a cultural figure who was extremely influential. She was very interested in um, books from Italy. So when both her husbands invaded Italy, Charles VIII and then Louis XII, they brought back hundreds of manuscripts from Italy for her that form a core of the collection in the Bibliothèque Nationale that many of us have benefited from. Uh, She was also interested in cultivating history. She particularly wanted to support chroniclers chronicling the history of Brittany to preserve the story of Brittany. Um, She also was very interested in new forms of religious devotion. And she, uh, third order Franciscans, for instance, uh, she patronized, she was known as being very devout. She also created a distinctly feminine uh, court. She had a circle of young women. She brought those women into her court. She clothed them. She trained them. She tried to arrange marriages that were advantageous both for them and to use them uh, to consolidate and advance French diplomatic efforts as well. So that, that, those were the range of activities that the court seemed to give her. Well, thank you. Anne of Brittany is a fascinating personage indeed. And now I'll ask you, Kathleen Wellman, to to skip ahead a little bit in your book, Queens and Mistresses of Renaissance France, because I can't wait to get to Diane de Poitiers, um, uh, who was the mistress of Henry II. And and what's striking about that affair is that um the age difference right between the two can you can you introduce Diane de Poitiers for us sure uh Diane de Poitiers was a famous noble woman um she was married to the seneschal of Normandy and that gave her tremendous status at court 
uh, and she became an influence in the life of Henry II when Francis I, uh, who had three sons, his oldest son uh, died young. Um, he, he was he had a third. Uh, his first son was named Francis. He died young. Henry then became his heir. And the problem with Henry, as far as Francis was concerned, is that Henry uh, was always described as someone who was more brawn than brains. Um, a Venetian ambassador said he had never seen Henry smile. And Henry had had a rather difficult childhood in that when Francis I was captured at the Battle of Pavia and taken hostage by Charles V, and held in a prison in Madrid to arrange a peace, he went back to France and his children became hostages in his stead. So his children spent several rather miserable years as prisoners in Spain. And Charles V got a lot of criticism from his contemporaries for not treating the royal hostages with the deference and comfort that one would expect, but making their conditions miserable enough that he thought his their father would actually uh, follow through on the treaty agreements more readily. So anyway, Char Henry II, as a young boy, is known for being rather morose, not particularly social, and Francis suggests that this older noble woman take him under her wing to tutor him in the ways of the court. And the court at this time was really influenced by romance literature, and Henry seems to have adopted Diane as his lady, and he would be her knight. And at the age of 16, he took her for his mistress, and she was 36. And this is truly the incident that my students could not get their heads around ever and still can't. And especially since Dion will remain Henry's mistress until his death uh, uh, in uh, 1559, uh, when He's in his 40s and she's about 60. So this is a very long-lived relationship. And um, she is able to remain one of his most significant political influences, to wield tremendous influence at court, to intervene in the family relationships between Henry and his wife, Catherine, Dion takes care of their children when they're ill, is their guardian, arranges their baptisms. It's a very convoluted family relationship that persists for a very long time. And one of the things that has made Dion such a prominent historical figure is that she and Henry created a myth which endures of their very ethereal relationship, she becomes identified with the goddess Diana of the hunt. Henry's a devoted hunter. Uh, Diane and Henry have themselves depicted where he's a stag and she's a beautiful, unclothed Renaissance goddess. And these images are all over the Loire Valley and in the Louvre in Renaissance arts. Um, so there's the creation of this quasi-ethereal mistress who is really a significant cultural figure who elevates the monarchy. And then there's poor Catherine de' Medici, who's bearing 10 children at the same time and is prosaic and maternal and not involved in this idealized romance and myth. So we have a real example here of the mistress displacing the queen with Diane de Poitiers and Catherine de Medici. Absolutely. As long as Diane is around, Catherine is in the shadows. And just to remain on Diane, um, it's, there's something very touching about this story, like the boy falling in love with his first teacher and yet he never grows out of it. Um, and he's sentimental uh, to her discretion about their relationship. He wore her colors of black and white. As you point out, he adorned almost every surface with a symbol that most scholars agree include the initials H and D 
intertwined and your book contains many beautiful images um, of, of this symbol on the chimneys at Shenanso Castle. Um, so h- how do you explain that? Uh, what? How do I explain his devotion to yes. her? Or um, it seems uh, sent, it seems rare for a, uh, for a Renaissance king to to express himself in such a way. But maybe it's not as rare as I'm. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't think. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, Charles and Agnes don't have all the Renaissance arts at their disposal. Uh, Francis I has mistresses, but he doesn't use the arts much to portray them, though he too has an idealized romantic relationship for a short time. Uh, what does make Henry and Dion uh, of note is the endurance of their relationship, but I think that's not just that he's sentimental, but also that she's so useful to him. I mean, she was useful to him as a young man and sort of educating him into into the mores of the court and advancing his interests and sort of teaching him about how to negotiate a complex political and cultural terrain. I mean, Henry, for a long time, when she's his mistress, is the heir in waiting, and his father doesn't give him much scope, and Henry sees some of Francis's political uh, alliances as undermining him, but he's always got Dion in his corner pushing his interests. And um, it's a con, I mean, so it's a relationship that's sentimental, devoted, but and devoted, but also expedient for Henry. And it's interesting to wonder had Henry not uh, been killed in a joust prematurely, whether whether their relationship would have continued to endure as Dion became, by Renaissance standards, a really old woman. Um, uh, And toward the end of her life, it looked like she was beginning to spend more time at her own Renaissance chateau and to be less influential, but she was still idealized. So it's interesting to speculate on what might have ultimately happened as Henry became a man in his 40s and she became a man and a woman in her 60s, whether what shape this relationship would have taken. But as long as they were involved, he could count on her always as having his interests. Now, one of the things I also point out is that his interests are her interests. Uh, She becomes, like all male favorites, very involved in cultivating her estates and the positions of her children. She had two daughters by her husband, and they ascend to great status in the French monarchy. Um, So royal mistresses take advantage of their position to advance uh, the status of their families in the same way that male favorites do. And she certainly did. And once Henry did ascend to the throne, how much authority did Dion have and what, how, how did she exercise it? What were her priorities politically? Uh, well, she was very, she was very pro-Catholic and anti-Protestant. And one of the things that clearly makes the 16th century such a uh, complicated story to tell is the role of the Protestant Reformation. Unlike the Renaissance in Italy, where it takes place long before the Reformation and takes place in a quite uh, coherent Catholic country, France will be increasingly divided along religious lines. And some of the manifestations of the Renaissance will be uh, more associated with with Catholicism than with Protestantism. Uh, Protestantism is associated with simplicity of images and not lavish arts. And uh, the Catholic Baroque, for instance, later will be extremely elaborate. And so the high points of French Renaissance artistic culture are more closely connected to the Renaissance, uh, to Catholicism. And Dion herself, favors the Catholic party. She advances some members of the Guise family, for instance. Um, She has particular interests. Now, they are also Henry's interests. Henry uh, is much more interested in persecuting 
Protestants, uh, and whenever there is peace, he is inclined to uh, to do so. Um, so Diane, with Henry, uh, is interested in advancing the interests of Catholicism and making sure that Protestantism does not gain a foothold in France. Mm-hmm. And sharing the same time period, sharing the same king is... Catherine de' Medici. And so she was immediately suspect in France because of both her Italian slash foreign origins and her commercial family uh, origins. Can you talk to us a bit about the Medici family and and their uh, links to the French crown at this time? Okay. um, Catherine de' Medici was considered an appropriate spouse for a second son. By, Char- by Francis I. Francis was intent on advancing French interests and French territorial acquisitions in Italy. He tried to invade Italy several times, and he needed cash for these ventures, and he also needed Italian allies. And Catherine's uncle was Pope Clement VII, and so Francis had arranged a match between his second son and Catherine de' Medici, uh, who was the heiress to the Medici fortunes, but her parents had both died when she was essentially right after her birth. She'd been raised in the papal court in Rome, and she came to France to marry Henry when she was 14. Now, unfortunately for Catherine, Clement VII died immediately, which sort of negated her diplomatic uh, value to the French crown. And so she was always considered a spouse whose value to the French crown hadn't really materialized in terms of cash and that she was not of sufficient status to be the wife of a king. And when Henry's older brother died, when Henry was 16, um, it became more questionable whether she should have ever been married to the French king and then, or to the French heir apparent now. And then the problem was that she did not bear children for many years. And so she was always under the threat of being sent back to France as, as uh, one of her critics unkindly put it as this sterile womb. Now, Catherine is an unusual case in that she did not bear children for many years. And when she did, she had 10. So she was, she's sort of an example in this book of uh, the exception that proves the rule that a woman's lifespan is determined by her fertility. Catherine is an exception in that she was extremely fertile and yet one of the longest lived women in this book. She lived to be 66 and had 10 children and um, many sons who survived into adulthood, which made her a model of royal fertility in the 16th century. You say um, in your book, Queens and Mistresses in Renaissance France, that Catherine de' Medici is unquestionably, quote, the most important political actor in France throughout her son's reigns. And now we're in the 1559 to 1570s mm-hmm. time frame, 80s even. Um, yeah. tell, tell us about that claim you make. Uh, okay, I can't think of anyone else who is as powerful as Catherine de Medici throughout the reign of her three sons, as I mentioned. Uh, while Henry's alive, she is occasionally a regent when he is on campaign. But uh, Henry sets up those regencies in a way that constrains her exercise of power. But she has tremendous power when her sons are minors. Um, Her son, Francis II, only reigns for a little more than a year. And her power there is challenged by the de Guise family. The de Guises are important players in the French wars of religion. They're important in the reign of Francis II because their niece is Mary, Queen of Scots, and she is married to Francis II. So Catherine's power is contested, but those are the two opposing powers during the reign of Francis II. When her son Charles IX is a minor and reigns for 
some 14 years, Catherine is the power behind the throne. When her son, Henry III, comes back, he comes to power. He is in his majority. She is not his regent, but she plays a tremendous role as his advisor and as his chief negotiator. She is indefatigable in trying to reconcile Protestant and Catholic forces to keep the peace or to keep a balance so that neither Protestant nor Catholic could become so powerful that they could control the French king. So she's the person trying to maintain peace or maintain a balance that will allow her sons to succeed and her dynasty to continue, which is why I see her as the most powerful person in France in this period. Okay. And she is managing innumerable competing forces and dealing with a lot of strife. And while she, I I wonder about your um, belief in her success, what are her successes? What are her failures? She becomes the scapegoat for the St. Bartholomew's Day's mass day massacre. Um, Can you tell us what that was and what was her role in it? Uh, I wish I could. I can tell you what the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre is. Uh, All right, so Catherine has many children, and she uses them to try and keep peace with everyone. And in a Europe that's divided by religious war, what that meant, it used to be allying with all of the important dynasties. Now it means allying with both Catholic and Protestants so that no one can decide that you are in one camp or the other. And it's a way to keep peace. And what she has to worry about is whether the Protestants will be able to call Protestant powers into France or whether the ultra-Catholic de Guises will be able to call Catholic powers into France to contest her if she or her son seem to be too... Uh, inclined to favor Protestants. So she marries her oldest daughter, Elizabeth, to the King of Spain. She decides that she will marry her daughter, Marguerite, to Henry of Navarre, who is related to the royal family and a prince of the blood, so therefore a very important member of the French nobility, but he is a Protestant. And she decides that this will help keep the balance. So She marries Marguerite to Henry in Paris. It's August. It's very hot. Religious tensions are very high. And at one point, one of the leaders of the Protestants, who is the Admiral Coligny, is shot at on the streets in Paris. And he's uh, taken back to his room and... Charles IX promises a full investigation of this attack on Coligny. And the question is, who knew what about this attack? Who authorized it? Was the royal family involved? Uh, There are no definitive answers to this. We know that the assassin... Uh, was tied to the de Guises, who are the ultra the leaders of the ultra-Catholic faction. Um, at this time, uh, there's some fear or there were rumors that the investigation would actually not go forward because um, it would expose members of the royal family. For whatever reason, a plot unfolds to assassinate the leaders of the Protestant faction who are all gathered in Paris still to celebrate this wedding. It's not clear who authorized it or how many people were involved in its, in its authorization. Catherine has often been considered complicit that she had to have known Charles the Ninth, likely had to have known uh, There's been recent speculation that Catherine didn't authorize it, but she knew that Henry III, who would be the next king or her other son, had authorized it and she was protecting him. It's not clear who authorized it. It is unlikely that anything more than 
the removal of what might be considered in modern terms enemies of state was authorized for expedient assassination. But what actually happened was uh, a massacre in which Catholics took to the streets, dragged Protestants out of their beds, massacred them. Uh, these massacres spread from Paris out to the countryside and it unleashed a horrific spate of violence throughout France, all in the name of religion. And uh, Catherine has borne the burden of this, of being responsible for this. This has tarred her reputation. I think it's been particularly influential in Anglo-American historiography. All of my Americanist colleagues, for instance, understand that she is a horrible villain with no redeeming features. And uh, I think, I mean, French historians obviously have a much more complex view of the situation. It is undoubtedly a horrific incidence of religious violence, but it's not clear how much of it she was responsible for. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, um, in addition to that legacy, um, she is portrayed in um, fiction, right, in history. Tell us about the, the legacy of, of Catherine de Medici, um, particularly how about Madame de Lafayette's Princess of Cleve? Uh, okay. Madame de Lafayette's Princess of Cleve looks back on the reign of well, she's writing in the 17th century, and she looks back actually less to Catherine than to Henry and Dion as a time when the monarchy functioned well and all was in good order, and then it's clearly degenerated through the wars of religion and then degenerated further under Louis XIV, but not all things were good under Henry and Dion when everything was polite and you know, it's it's sort of a version of looking back to the good old days when things were the way we hoped they would be. Mm. But uh, but but Catherine's um, Catherine gets to be a really diabolical figure in nineteenth-century fiction, and one of the things that really interested me in, in doing this book is the sort of what I call the posthumous legacy of all of these women the way they've the ways in which they've subsequently been used and one of the things that makes this story interesting to me is not only do all the women do different things and have different impacts and deal with different life situations and political situations and have different cultural interests but also they're interpreted later in very different ways and i think it's fair to say that uh Catherine's reputation until very recently has probably been the darkest among um, all of the women I treat in this book. And I think it has a great deal to do with the amount of power she actually wielded. One of the sort of generalizations I would make is that the more influential a woman was politically, the more her reputation was tarnished in the 19th century. You could be a praiseworthy woman if you restricted yourself to maternity or to cultural events or to sort of standing by your man. But if you were actively politically engaged, then, then you become the source of all the negative attributes of monarchy that a number of 19th century historians wanted to uh, what describe as distinct from the post-revolutionary period. And in your conclusion, you focus on particular French historians, Guizot, Michelet, Lavis, um, in their treatment of all of these mistresses and queens um, as they're writing the history of France. And um, can you just say a few words about that before we conclude and then perhaps um, explain your response to that historiography as as you manifest it through the publication of this book okay one of the th i started in every case with what what was the story told about the woman from her time onward mm -hmm. uh and so when these 19th and early 20th century historians like Michelet, Guizot, and Lavis are telling a story about the women they have plenty of material to build on uh in particular 
the Bourbons who come to power after the Valois are intent. Well, first of all, the 17th century is a period of great royal historians. And if you're going to make the case for the Bourbon dynasty, one of the things you want to do is distinguish it from the Valois. So what you do is you write stories about great, masculine, powerful kings who rely on women, not at all. So when these 19th century historians are looking back to the pre-revolutionary period and they want to uh, they want to tell a story of heroic France. And one of the things they do is they're responsible for a revival of the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, you get knights, you get valiant kings, you get jousts, you get really fabulous images of good kings. You get to the period of the wars of religion and you have all this misogynist and anti-Valois bourbon historiography to rely on. You've got uh, lots of good stories to tell and you have a tale of monarchy that was repressive towards Protestants, and some of these historians were Protestants, uh, that were intent on developing into absolutist kings, and so uh, concentrating in a power in a way that the revolution would have to undo, etc. So you tell a story about the kings who were good or the French people who were good, and they're invariably the strong kings who excluded women. And so all of these historians tell a tale in which politically powerful women were anathema. And the reasons that they were anathema is because they were female. Because they were female, they were guided by their passions. Uh, The kings, who were obviously intellects, were not able to resist these powerful women, and so they worked in ways that undermined France. The other kinds of stories they tell are about mistresses, and they approve of mistresses generally, in part because if royal women have, or queens have, negative historiography attached to them, royal mistresses have tales of romance and novels that praise them. And so these historians then could also promote these mistresses as figures of romance who supported the kings that they were involved with, who didn't take a role in politics, but were simply, they made the lives of the men they were involved with better and easier And this feeds into the 19th century notion of separate spheres and also to a notion of political culture where all men are privileged above all women with the New Republic and the exclusion of women from politics. So I think this is part of the reason that this is the story that seems so appealing to them. And what I was struck by is the persistence of this mythology. It still shows up everywhere. I have friends who've been educated in France recently, and they all think Dion de Poitiers is a fabulous figure of romance, just as one key example. And your book, if I may, um, uh, ex- exhumes the real stories behind these women, um, their agency, their action, um, the way they maneuvered through their constraints to achieve their priorities. And it's a wonderful revisionist history indeed. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Kathleen Wellman, we've taken up a lot of your time. Please, before we conclude, however, will you tell us what you are working on now? Well, I this the Queens and Mistresses book was motivated by my teaching, and it was so much fun to do. I sort of decided that what I ought to do is uh, sort of follow my interests where they take me. Uh, one thing I'm interested in doing, perhaps for a popular audience, is a comparison of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. Uh, Elizabeth is extolled so universally, Catherine reviled so universally, at least in the Anglo, uh, the the uh, English tradition, uh, English-American tradition. And um, 
Yet their circumstances were, they had so many similarities in the issues they had to deal with. Uh, I'm also concerned, uh, I live in Texas, as do you, Julie, with um, what's being done in terms of teaching world history and the kind of rewriting of a particular kind of world history that for instance, denounces the Renaissance, denounces the French, and has a very peculiar take on world history. So I might get involved in world history standards, for instance. And then I'm beginning to explore, I think, as most of my colleagues are, uh, the early modern in its more global dimensions. So there are lots of things I'm interested in pursuing in the future, and I just hope that these future projects are as much fun as Queens and Mistresses was to do. Well, they sound like they will be, and it's it's a wonderful project that we've we've reflected on today. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Kathleen. Take care. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. 